Welcome to the Scalar Learning Podcast, your central hub for all things related to education. Join us every episode for the most up-to-date tips and strategies on how to maximize student potential. Sit back, listen, and enjoy. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Scalar Learning Podcast, where we talk about education all the time. And today is another special episode where we are doing a career spotlight on a very good friend of mine who's joining the show, very impressive individual, and he is a data scientist. And you're going to hear all about what that means to be a data scientist. So his name is Michael. I'm going to give him a little bit of background, and then we're going to dive into everything that he does and what he studied in school and all that good stuff. But Michael has been basically processing what you I think what he calls in his industry analytics basically a lot of number crunching and and essentially analysis of numbers and statistics to a high level to make predictions about different types of behaviors or different types of outcomes, et cetera. So I'm, I'm talking about it very generally. We're going to dive in with Michael right now. So without further ado, Michael, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me on the show. Thank you so much for joining. I'm really excited. So me and Mike go way back. Well, we go back about a few years, I'd say. But Mike, why don't you tell everybody what you – so tell us where you know, where'd you go to school, what'd you study, all that good stuff. Yeah, absolutely. So I did my undergrad at Harvard, uh, studied economics. Specifically, I was really interested in health econ. And health economics is kind of the study of how people behave uh, in terms of their behavior and their expenditures on healthcare when there are a lot of weird incentives in the healthcare industry. And so, you know, studying insurance markets and, you know, markets for healthcare and how those don't really look like markets for, you know, whatever it is, pencils, pens, widgets, whatever it is you're actually buying because we have weird incentives. Um, so uh, finished my econ degree, decided I want to do even more, kind of get into more depth and, and ended up getting a PhD in economics. And again, focusing specifically on health economics. Um, and so I, I got my PhD from UPenn. That was about five years and change. And since that time, have joined, uh, you know, I decided I was, I was kind of t- done with academia. I joined the private sector. I've joined now a couple different startup companies, helping them to use the, the data that they currently collect to make better decisions actually about the workforce. Um, and just, you know, brief segue, I, I'd studied organizational behavior within healthcare organizations, got really interested in it, and started trying to understand what makes people tick why do they work well together? Why do they work poorly? What's the impact of a good or a bad boss? And so there's tons of human capital data out there that organizations collect but don't really do much with. And so I kind of like to fill that gap in helping them leverage the power of that data to make better decisions about their people so that they can get them to reach their potential, get more out of their employees. So you basically – so it's not only just – it's not just the hiring part or maybe that's not even – the, a very small part, but it's it's about now once we have a collection of employees, how do we allocate those those resources and how do we line people up with particular positions? Is that right? Yeah, it's it's all stages of what I call the employee life cycle. If you think about the decisions that you're making about your talent, the, the most obvious decision is who to hire, right? But 
you're making decisions constantly about how to onboard and train them, who should supervise them, what their compensation level should be, when they should be up for promotions, what teams they should belong to. Even I'm studying now where they sit and who they sit next to and how that influences their performance. So, you know, there, there's a long, long list of, of research that basically finds that people make imperfect decisions because we're biased by our own experiences and because we don't have all the information. So I try to supplement those decisions with data so that people are more likely to make the right decisions throughout that employee life cycle. And if you do that, you, you get more out of your employees. Now, I just got to ask as a general matter, because this is fascinating. Of course, me and me and Mike are good friends, and we've, I, we've talked in general details about what you do and the companies you work for. But a question just popped into my head. I don't think I've asked you this before. But when you're, let's say, advising a company with regards to salaries for certain employees, it usually feels like it's the, the, the way it starts is a, a, a company is just trying to pay the least amount of money to an employee. But I just got to ask, is that always the case that is, or is that always the way that you advise? Cause I have to imagine in a lot of cases, maybe even the majority of cases, you might go the other way and say, no, if you really want to make this a lasting relationship, a fruitful partnership, so on and so forth. Yeah, no, I mean, that's a great point. And, and in many cases, companies are trying to kind of maximize the, the employee that they get for the minimum salary. But what, what we're finding in the research is that, um, first off, you get kind of more effort and more engagement from employees when you pay them wages that are, you know, near the mean or even above the mean in terms of, you know, kind of how they compare to industry standards. And companies are realizing that if you pay employees less than you could for, it might work for a short while, but people look around, they have options, especially in an era of social media where it's easy to find jobs and they tend to leave more quickly. And guess what? When the employee leaves, replacing that person, finding a replacement, training them, getting them up to speed can cost as much as 1.5 of their annual salary. So, you know, 150% to try, try to retrain someone and fill that gap. So, that, that's a great point. And some of the advice that I often give companies is, yeah, just because you can get away in the short term with paying them less than they might deserve in the long term, it actually tends not to work out as well. It's so interesting because I think it's it just highlights a principle that I honestly do try and follow myself. And I think it's I think what you're really getting at is in these types of cases and hiring scenarios, if you end up just doing things along the lines of you could say roughly morality or equity. Uh, equality, I, I should say, it's like you do what is fair, and you you give somebody what they probably should deserve based on market, or even better if you want, if you think their skills warrant a higher salary, things will work out better. That's kind of it's kind of a nice lesson, I think. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the way I the analogy I use, and I borrow this from my kind of healthcare background, is you know people tend to underinvest in preventative care, so giving person a person the right salary and wages along the way. Can, is kind of preventative care. You keep them happy, and in the end, they'll stay longer. All of a sudden, if you have a heart attack, then you have to pay a ton more than you would have if you'd just done regular checkups. So I tell people, listen, think about the long term. Like, you know, you're exactly right, Jose, but if you, if you pay people along the way what they deserve and you kind of treat them with respect, you, you end up paying less in the long term because you've kind of engendered that loyalty, and that's really key. That's really cool. So we're, I want to get into the math very shortly, but just for anybody listening, because I, of course, find this fascinating. If they're kids or children or students listening, be, uh, in addition to parents, and they're saying, I, I don't know what it is about what this guy's saying, but it sounds kind of fascinating. What would you say 
are like what were you interested in in college and beyond that that made this career such a good fit for you and how would you what types of kids or what types of thinkers would you say would fall nicely into this field yeah that's a great question i think there are actually two paths to being a data scientist one is kind of the engineering path so there, there are a lot of data scientists that are former engineers that like working with code and like thinking very logically and they apply these mathematical models to their data uh, instead of just writing kind of pure code. I came at it from a different angle, which is more of a social scientist. And for me, the thing that makes someone a social scientist is asking interesting questions and then digging really hard to solve them. And so, you know, if if you have that intellectual curiosity where you wonder, you know, what it is that keeps someone on the job longer or what motivates someone to seek out, you know, preventative care versus, you know, kind of care when, when they're having an acute, whatever it is, condition, then those are interesting questions. And, and, you know, the first step along those lines is, you know, I study stats. I think econ is, is kind of a, a derivative of statistics, but then ultimately work with faculty or professors or teachers and, and try engaging in research, ask a cool question, find some data to answer it, figure out what the answer is. It can be any number of different fields. But if you like that process of asking questions and then answering them using data, then you can just find so many opportunities to keep doing that. And that's what builds up those like those data science chops. This really what you're saying reminds me of and I apologize if, if people say this to you all the time, but this reminds me of the book Freakonomics, which I love that book. Is it, I mean, is this kind of what you're getting at where you ask these interesting questions and actually try and answer them? Yeah, that's exactly what it is. And by the way, a huge fan of the books, the podcast I was actually interviewed for the podcast about a year and a half ago. So it's I, I love their approach, which is they find kind of common questions, but then they find really creative ways of answering those questions. And if you, if, if those books or even the Malcolm Gladwell type of work, if that really resonates with you and you love reading that stuff, then I think, you know, a career as, as an economist or a social scientist is definitely a good uh, path to consider. It's such a great book. If you guys haven't read it, I haven't, I haven't listened to the podcast, but the book is, is really phenomenal and really fun. Okay. So this is all great stuff. I know Mike, you've been on different shows and different podcasts. Uh, you're, you've got quite the reputation in the data scientist world. So it's great to have you. It's great to have you. I don't know if I'm using the right, the right vernacular for that, but I'm, it's great to have you on here. So now let's get down to the nitty gritty. We have students, we have parents out there listening about math and how does it actually relate to the real world? I get that question a lot. Why do I need to know this? What's the relevance of it? You're going to give it to us in your line of work and it's going to be really, really interesting, I think, I hope. So now let's get into it. So what are some of the math concepts that you use on a regular basis to do what you do? Yeah, I mean, honestly, math underlies everything I do. Uh, so there are, I mean, so many different examples. I'm, I'm, I'm using math constantly. I think first and foremost, if you're thinking about running statistical models, uh, regression, a logistic regression, any of that stuff, that's all linear algebra. It, it took, I didn't even realize this initially. I just had an aptitude for working with data. And oftentimes the first way you're exposed to that data is an Excel spreadsheet. I didn't realize that the data is, is all matrices, right? It's literally doing transformations of matrices in order to arrive at some result, some conclusion. So uh, you know, it, it was funny that I started kind of I was studying math independently of working with data and just playing around with it and then realized, holy crap, this is this is all linear algebra. This is exactly the stuff that I learned in terms of transposing matrices and so on and so forth. So, 
you know, first and foremost, if you have an interest in social science and statistics and econ, I think paying very close attention to those linear algebra classes, those are tremendously valuable. Um, and for, Go ahead. for guys that are listening, if you're not familiar, if you haven't gone to the stage yet in math, what a, I'll just define a matrix in very broad terms. And by the way, we just I had Howard Marks on not too long ago talking about video games. And again, that's another concept. We talk about matrices with respect to storage of data. It, even me as a software engineer, coder, we use matrices there too. So a matrix is simply this: it is a collection of data or numbers organized in rows and columns, more or less, kind of like a spreadsheet that you might see in Microsoft Excel, something like that. Matrices are very near and dear to me in particular because that is the, that's kind of what my logo for scalar learning, it's all built around a matrix. You have the brackets on the outside that contain the data and then you have the data inside and that of course is the inner part of my my logo. So it's so cool. Uh, yes, awesome. Matrices, yeah. check them yeah. out. <laughs> Absolutely. So that's for 100% first and foremost. I think Beyond that, there's, you know, very simple concepts and statistics like, you know, mean, median, you're doing work with um, standard deviations and ideal invariances all the time. And I'm constantly trying to find ways to display that information about a big column of data. So then we're calculating correlations and covariances and things like that. Those, those are what at the end of the day, those are all very simple arithmetic calculations that are being applied to a column of numbers. Uh, but you know, at the end of the day, it's, 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 it's a Greek formula, right? There's a, there's a, there's Greek lettering to represent mean and, and variance and standard deviation, correlation, covariance, all of those things. Now I had a friend of mine who owns a construction company on yesterday and he talked about the importance of mental math in his line of work in particular. It, it, and it, it may not always be the case, but he had to make, he has to make on a regular basis calculations mentally on the fly is would you say is it the same in your industry or is, is it not so important or critical it, it absolutely is primarily because i'm doing gut checks all the time so a big part of being a data scientist is making sure that you're you're cleaning or extracting and cleaning the data in the right way and to do that you need to constantly kind of compare different numbers different columns of numbers and figure out hey is is this number that I arrived at, this average across the population, does that seem to be within range given all the other figures that I'm looking at? And so, yeah, you're absolutely using these kind of rules of thumb and, and just eyeballing data and trying to figure out, okay, did, did I do something wrong? Or does it seem like if you add up these, these, these different columns of numbers and multiply them by two, you end up with the answer that I, that I just generated? So good. And th this is th this is literally what I talk about all the time with mental math is this is the same on standardized test preparation for construction for being a data scientist. It's all about being able to recognize whether or not something makes sense. And why do you need that? Because when you are doing these calculations via a computer or a calculator, you could make a mistake, you could type something in wrong, or you could enter a piece of code incorrectly. And if your number sense isn't on point, you're not going to see the error. You're going to just assume and take the computer or the machine's word for it. And that is the key. Like I said, so this is this is some real relevance with respect to mental math. So for all the kids out there listening uh, and hearing hearing this, take, take it to heart. And really, the, the beautiful thing about it, the final thing that I'll say on mental math right now anyways, <laughs> the final thing that I'll say is that it's really not that hard to improve your mental math skills. It's it's it would just take 
maybe a month, maybe not even, of good dedicated daily practice and short bursts to shore up your multiplication and division. Okay, Mike, back to you. Talk, yeah. talk more about math in your world. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, beyond the, the kind of statistical operations that I mentioned before, you know, a lot of times I'm trying to do some like some optimization, right? So I'll have a system. Actually, I'll give you an example from just a couple weeks ago. Um, I needed to figure out, I don't want to get in too, too much of the weeds here, but you know, there, there's a company that sort of labels employees red, yellow, green. The idea is that the reds are more at risk of leaving. They have a higher flight risk. I needed to figure out, given certain assumptions, given a different distribution of greens, yellows, and reds, kind of what was the average tenure of the population, right? And, and really, at the end of the day, I realized what I had on my hands were three variables, which was the proportion of that population, that employee population that was green, yellow, red. And then I also had three different equations because I knew the relative distribution of them and I knew kind of on average how long employees stayed. So it's funny that I, I kind of looked at this and I realized, oh, wow, I have three equations and I have three variables. I remember this is SAT math. I can solve for one of them given that I have the other two. And so with, you know, I plugged in the numbers, I ended up with the right answer. I double checked it and then I entered it into my Excel spreadsheet. You know, this is something that, you know, there's no math program that, that really wouldn't be able to do it. Like I, I just needed to sort of reason it out myself and literally I, I tried for about half an hour to figure it out in my head, and then I wrote it down on a piece of paper. My three equations. I literally felt like I was taking the SAT. So uh, it, it's funny, you know, Josefa, you came to mind because I realized, holy crap, you know, I'm, I'm 35 years old and I've been doing this for a long time, and yet I still can't escape those SAT questions that you know I, I had to deal with back in the day when I was studying for the SAT math. You know, the College Board just revamped the entire SAT in in March. They just released a new one, so it's got a whole new spin to it now from how it was when we took it. Really? Yep. Back to 1,600 points, but they've they, – yeah, it's – I actually just did an episode on the new SAT a couple episodes ago. So if you guys want to check it out, you can, where I talk about the changes. And more importantly, I actually – gathered some analytics and ran the numbers on a bunch of practice tests that I had access to and was able to figure out exactly how the questions had been redistributed based on different topics. So it was really interesting because there have been some, some, some substantial redistribution of question types. Oh, interesting. Yeah, I mean, it's so funny. I studied for the SATs, I mean, what, 20 years ago now, but um, I don't know. It, it, it's been so long and it's it's such a skill in and of itself, right? It's not just knowing math. It's knowing the types of questions that they ask. And so I, I'm not sure how I would do on the SAT. And I'm, part of me is tempted to try to take one just to see. I can you arrange know? that. I can arrange that. <laughs> I'm sure. I'm sure you can. <laughs> I still take them all the time. Uh, okay, so cool. And I th- I know you mentioned some point that you, you actually – this is something that's really cool because I know a lot of kids don't like logarithms. They don't like natural log. They don't like whatever – they, they have just a natural aversion to, towards logs. Tell us, but they're important and they, they're useful. Tell us how you use logs in your work. Yeah, absolutely. I, I get logs every day. And, and it's because taking the log of a number is a good way of, of what's called scaling or standardizing that number. And I'll give you an example. You know, if I'm trying to predict how long is someone who's going to stay on the job, well, you know, the number of days is helpful, but, you know, from one employ- one profession to another, you know, the, the average tenure could be a year or two more, a year or two less. It's hard to compare those things. And so if I'm trying to compare the effects 
across different job categories, it's really hard to do because a, a day can mean something very different for an engineer than it means for someone who's you know working in an hourly job. So the, what I end up doing more often than not is I'll take that variable and I'll take the log of it and then I'll enter it into whatever model I'm running. Again, a you know, regression model or a logistic model. And the nice thing is that you know, by the by the power of math, that automatically scales the variable. So now when I'm interpreting the effect of some variable on tenure, uh, say distance to work, right? Now I'm not interpreting, hey, what's the impact of living close to your work on the days that you work on the job? I end up being able to interpret it in terms of the percent of tenure. So how much longer you're you're 10% light, you're gonna stay 10% longer because you ended up working close to work or you know you live close to work or whatever. So you know that that's a really key attribute and it's one of those really amazing things that you know all of a sudden these numbers that could be very different now they become very sort of standardized and there's a common scale that we can use and we can interpret them in terms of percents which also by the way means that I can present results to a CEO and it's just more interpretable it's more digestible. So you know, we, we were chatting earlier, like I, I love logs. I, I'm taking doing logarithmic transformations all the time because it's just like best practice in economics is if you're throwing something into an equation, you should take the log of it because it's just going to behave kind of more in a better way. Very interesting. What, so you mentioned briefly percentages, and I know we've been talking about some higher-level concepts like matrices, logs, but what about, what about some of the more basic things? For example, I'm, right now I'm teaching a fourth-grade class every day in math, and we're, we're lear- learning things like fractions, percents, decimals. How, I mean, I have to imagine those are a big part of everything you do as well. Oh, 100%. Absolutely. Again, you know, percentages, I think, are, are, are super important because – you need to understand, like I said, the absolute value of things can change and it can be different, but percentages can be consistent across different units of measurement. So, you know, it's more intuitive for me to say a 10% increase in the distance to work results in a 5% decrease in your attrition. So, you know, ultimately, almost everything I'm doing, I'm trying to take it as a percent because it's just it's more easy to understand and it's more it's easier to sort of explain to people that I work with around, you know, what what the interpretation is. And again, it's it's not a percent seems like the the, the easiest thing in the world, but it's core to everything that I'm doing is is being able to sort of calculate and, of course, do those calculations in my head on the fly, figuring out, okay, you know, what's you know, 30 is what percent of 800. It's just, you know. You need to do those exercises so that you can just spout it off really quick. Uh, one day we should have a mental math competition. I think it'd be very interesting because I practice a lot, obviously, just by virtue of what I do, and I'm sure you do too, just naturally. So it would be kind of fun. Not now. Yeah. I'm not going to do it on the air, but we'll do it. <laughs> I think in private because I don't want to lose uh, publicly. <laughs> we'll, we'll plan that another time. Okay, so cool, excellent. So we talked about all these different applications. Is there anything? Is there anything else, any other big areas of math that you use on a regular basis? I mean, those are the big ones. You know, I think, you know, it's funny when when there are other models, the, the models that economists tend to use are, are heavy on linear algebra. There are other models that are used more by your kind of engineer type data scientists that are using things like, like geometric dif- distances. And, and it's funny that we're doing this for the podcast because they're using scalars to measure distances between, you know, two different locations and things like that. Um, 
I'm trying to think the uh, like support vector models use a lot of those. Um, so, you know, th those that's funny. It's, you know, as a data scientist, you run these models and you don't think about what's under the hood because you don't really have to know. It just spits out results and the results either work or they don't. But, the, you know, I always like to tell people like, you know, back in grad school when I was learning about all these models and how they worked, it's super important to dig into the details to understand exactly what's going on under the hood because there are assumptions being made by those models and you want to make sure that you're not violating those assumptions. Something like a normal distribution, really straightforward. It's easy to calculate if something is normally distributed, but if it, your data isn't, that has huge implications for, for how you can interpret the results. So, you know, it's under the hood, there's so much math going on. These, these, these models are all math. And it's, you know, I get out of practice and, and it's been a while since I've dug into the textbooks and figured out what they're doing, but it's, it's absolutely important to kind of, to understand that. I got one last question for you and I, I'm going to give you a second to even think about it. But if you, if you could reflect back and tell me based on statistics or data or analysis that you've, that you've run, what is one thing or something that you've discovered that was really interesting, that was very, that was extremely counterintuitive that you, that you learned. And maybe there's tons of things that you've learned probably, but that you learned that was, you were like, wow, this really blew me away when, with respect to employment and relationships at work. Yeah. Yeah. The one, the one I'll cite is actually one that's been cited a bit. They talked about it on the Freakonomics podcast. Adam Grant wrote about it. We started studying. I got very interested in you know, predicting how long people would stay on the job, how they perform. That's something I've done for a long time. But, you know, you can ask them questions and often they try to game the system. So I got very interested in, can I measure things about you without you giving me those answers that might give me a clue as to how good an employee you would be? And some of the things we were ca capturing at my last job were these latent signals. Like in our case, we knew, you know, where you had, you know, what IP address you used to log into our assessment, but also what browser you used. So, you know, my, my being kind of interested in asking interesting questions, we threw your browser choice into our models. And we found that your choice of browser was actually a very strong predictor of performance in these jobs. And uh, I'll put you on the spot, Huseyfa, what, what browser do you use? Google Chrome. There, so good news for you. Google Chrome <laughs> and Firefox users stay on the job 5 to 10% longer. They perform a couple percentage points better than their Safari and or Internet Explorer using colleagues. And, you know, A, that was fascinating to me that, that we could get that signal just once you log into the platform. But B, we dug in a little bit more and we found out it wasn't about technical aptitude or it wasn't about your typing scores or anything else. It was just a matter of the fact that you took the initiative to install a non-default browser on your computer, Huseyfa, shows that you're someone that cares about your productivity, that you're taking initiative, that you actually want to be as productive as possible. So, you know, I, I don't know if it's counterintuitive because a lot of people look at me and say, okay, I know that Internet Explorer users aren't the best, but um, I thought it was really interesting that's, that you can learn something about someone without asking them a single question. I would have to say that's super interesting. And I mean, I, maybe counterintuitive is not the right word, but man, that's it's mind-blowing to me that you would have that type of a correlation with the, something like that. Because I would – I mean – the only reason why I wouldn't call it counterintuitive, it's not like I would think the opposite or something will be true, but I would think it obviously would have no effect, and that's really interesting. But it, but the way you explain it makes sense. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so that I love. I mean, I live for for those sort of findings where 
we dig into some data and we find something you wouldn't have even known without having the data and asking the right question and then putting it together. And, and when we share that stuff, and then of course, when it gets picked up by the press and lots of people write about it, I mean, that's just gravy for me. That's the best feeling in the world. All right. So cool. Thank you so much for joining us. So we are now at the end of the show. Mike, if anybody wants to reach out and check out your website or get in touch with you, how can they do that? Yeah, absolutely. So I have I have my personal website, michaelhausman.com. Last name is H-O-U-S-M-A-N. No E in there. Um, so feel free to visit the websites where I post any of my most recent articles, stuff that's written about me. Um, and then, of course, my, my email address is listed on the site as well. So if you want to get in touch, shoot me a line. I, I love hearing from people who are reading the stuff that I'm writing. Awesome. All right. Thank you so much. And again, if you want more information or that link to that website, go to www.scalarlearning.com. You can check out all the show notes there. And remember, episodes are dropping on the regular this summer every day, summer of 2016. So check back regularly. And of course, as always, thank you for tuning in. And I'll see you guys next time. Take it easy.